We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. Guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris, and I'm Jake, and we have a good episode for you guys today. Jake's kind of working. a special episode. Yeah, we'll call this a special edition. Right, this is our first special edition. We have current events, news, and that is going to parlay into a little history segment as well. Yeah, we're going to talk. What do we want to tell people? What we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, we kind of alluded to it in the we, intro. There, we did. Yeah, basically, what we were talking about the other day is no car manufacturers are producing cars right now. And the only other time this has happened in history was was during World War II when they all shifted to basically wartime production. Right, right. And there's some parallels there that we're going to cover. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I want to give a hat tip to Chad Erickson, who kind of floated the idea that this would be a good good idea for an episode. And it turns out he's right. It's really, really interesting. And I'm really excited to get into it. We're also going to get into um, a little bit of other news going on in the auto industry today. We're going to talk about our projects and uh, I know you've been doing a lot on your car. I've been doing nothing on my car and <laughs> quite a bit about quite a bit on another one. But before we get to that, what have we got? Yeah, let's talk about Omaze. They are a fundraising platform that offers once in a lifetime experiences, including dreamworthy cars. They've actually raised over one hundred thirty million dollars for charities around the world. And right now, Omaze. Jake, Jake, one thing that's really important when it comes to stuff like this. Yeah. Right now is charity. Exactly. And charity is what really keeps pushing things forward. You know, you can get you can get checks for the government all you want, but supporting charity, especially, you know, with Omaze is cool, but also within your local community too. Sure. Um, charity people really need help. And if you have the means to help, please do so. Yeah. And what's cool about Omaze right now, they're giving away a brand new Porsche Taycan Turbo. And I have been able to re- ride in one of these things. They're amazing. Omaze is also throwing in $20,000 cash that you can spend any way you like or donate back because you won't be spending it on gas if you get a Taycan Turbo. And they'll even fly you out to LA to receive the keys from factory Porsche driver Patrick Dempsey himself. And like you said, every donation supports a good cause. In this case, you're helping cancer patients through the Dempsey Center. They're committed to making life better for people managing the impact of cancer, caregivers, family members of all ages. Head over to omaze.com slash overcrest to check it out. And with a donation of $10, you're entered to win. All right. So I've done nothing on my car. I'm still waiting for some chemicals and stuff to do uh, the rest. I Actually, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm procrastinating what I need to do and saying it's because I don't have some of the stuff that I need. Sure. But I've, I've got a little bit of welding left to do. But then after that, it's all seam sailor and paint and everything like that and get it, get it buttoned up. So I haven't touched the 911, but I did um, uh, mess up my 190E. Uh-oh. So the springs I bought are way too low. <laughs> Wait, did you just say too low, Chris? It's way too low. I'm pretty sure last week we were saying everything is better lowered. And you made fun of me for disagreeing. Well, I went on a try. Just just a terrible rant about this. And now you're saying, oh, it's too low. Well, I didn't say everything needs to be scraping along the ground on the bump stops, did I? More or less. No, I did not. Stop manipulating my words. I didn't say that. <laughs> anyway, so it's too low for a daily driver. When I was much younger, I probably would have been like, yeah, let's just scrape the bottom of the oil pan off this car. But not with this thing. I want this to still drive pretty nice. So I took the, first of all, the springs, I think I mentioned this last week, are okay. enormous on 
Mercedes. They, they are. I couldn't believe this. They saw this on your Instagram story. They are enormous. And uh, it's not, like I said, it's not anything but Fierce and Strut. The Strut and the Spring are separate. And right. what they did is to change the ride height on these cars is they did do different springs, but they also did different spring pads. So these so, are like the spring purchase, basically. Uh, well, the purchase is what attaches to the car. Kay. Okay. So that's the metal part where the, the yeah. spring attaches okay. to. And then you have the spring pad, which is a rubber bushing, basically, sure. to help keep road vibration out of because the spring vibrates right. a lot that when you That seems like a good thing to have, Chris. Yeah, I noticed I can hear a little bit more vibration in the car <laughs> without the spring pads in there. Plus, it's too low, like ridiculously low. It, it has really, a weird really, rake to it, too, It is really, really low. Um, but my wheels are done as of now. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it over to the place to pick them up. But once I get the wheels, then I'll be able to start messing with how to make them fit sure. with the ride hikes. I don't want to start cutting springs and adding a bunch of spring pads when I don't know where things need to be. That makes sense. So I'm going to bolt the wheels on the car, take a look, and uh, I just got a text from my wife that says, need vodka for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I just saw it pop up on the computer. Excellent. So I guess this evening is going to be great. I don't know what that means, but that, <laughs> that's never bad. Well, uh, okay. Well, speaking of great things, you also hit your hand very hard. I did. So it's, you know, while I, you were doing this, I, what was I? I was, I was prying on the spring, trying to get the spring out. So, cause it has these stupid spring compressors that has, it has a, uh, you have to do it from the inside the spring. So right. this little shaft with a screw on it goes inside the spring and it basically locks on to, sure. and it doesn't really lock on. It kind of, you, <laughs> you start turning it. If it's not tight, it starts like winding the spring up the coil. So you, oh, have, to, yeah. you have to hold that. Plus you have to hold it in place. Otherwise it just goes doing and it like slips through. <laughs> so anyway, I, I compressed it all the way down. Finally, after messing with it forever. And have you ever used one of those air ratchets? Oh Yeah. And I had it on top, and of course, when I went to loosen the thing, it went and it yeah, shoved my hand. Your hand goes with the ratchet. My hand went with it right into the, the inner fender, and it was stuck. Because yep. it was like, and I'm yep. like, yeah! <laughs> of course, that was, that was wonderful. So then I basically reached over with my other hand and unplugged the air. Oh, no. <laughs> so I could get my hand out. <laughs> it hurt. Yeah. It sucked. So anyway, so then I got it all the way compressed down. I'm like, crap, it's not enough. Oh, I geez. couldn't get the spring out. It wasn't compressed enough because I had because I had walked the spring pad thing, not the, the for the compressor. Yeah. wasn't enough coils down. So when it oh. was all the way tight, you have your shoes off right now. Yeah. Oh my god, it was all the way tight, and I couldn't get the spring out. So I go to get my big Snap-on pry bar, stick it in the spring, and uh -huh. I start like prying on it and pushing on it, and it slips off the spring, and my hand slams into the control arm. <laughs> yeah. And, what and it was you one of those things. Where I, I didn't say a word at that time. I, this was not one of the instances where oh, we're going to talk okay. about in a minute. And it was one of those ones where you hit your hand. And, and you, you wait for the pain. I waited for the pain, and I didn't look. I'm like, e I don't want to look at it. I don't even want to see. So I put a glove on <laughs> and then just continued to work. But it, but the thing is, is it didn't slip. Like, it didn't, like, gouge. It just smashed. Yeah. So there's actually, it so hurts really bad, but I'm but I'm fine. But anyway, half the other time, I'm with this spring compressor thing, and I'm trying to screw the thing down, and it's slipping off, and I can't, and I can't get it on, and I can't get it off, and it's just, it's a nightmare because then it's, I couldn't pull it out because it was too long sure. to get out because control arm was in the way. I couldn't get it out the top because the other thing was in the way and I'm swearing. And I, so I, my, what is your choice words when you are, when you're angry at a car? Is there something that you say every single time? And mine is, uh, set, you got to say it like Joe Pesci. Okay. Right. And he says it like this. You motherfucker, you. 
But I don't say it like that. I kind of go, you fuck you, you motherfucking cocksucker, you, you fucker, you. A wise man and legendary great American author said, quote, under certain circumstances, profanity provides a relief denied even to prayer. So, but I did look this up. The use of obscene or taboo language or swearing, as it's more commonly known, is often seen as a sign that the speaker lacks vocabulary. Right. So what are you supposed to say? Oh, Jesus, my finger hurts. Or, oh, I just smashed my hand with a hammer. (laughs) Um, And they think that they cannot express themselves in a less offensive way or even that they lack intelligence. However, Mm -hmm. I looked this up. A study by psychologists from Marist College found links between how fluent a person is in the English language and how fluent they are in swearing. Okay. The former, verbal fluency, can be measured by asking volunteers to think of as many words as they can, beginning with a certain letter of the alphabet as they can in one minute. People with greater language skills can generally think of more examples in the allotted time. Based on this approach, researchers created the swearing fluency task. This task requires volunteers to list as many different swear words as they can think of in one minute. By comparing scores from both the verbal and swearing fluency tasks, it was found that the people who scored highest on the verbal fluency test also tended to do best on the swearing fluency task. The weakest in verbal fluency also did poorly on the swearing fluency task. So vocabulary is vocabulary. So what does that say about the British people that just say cunt all the time? <laughs> That's all they've got. <laughs> they say they're the masters of the English language. Uh, I, don't I don't think, think so. I don't think so. Instead, either. swearing appears to be a feature of language that is that an articulate speaker can use in order to communicate with maximum effectiveness. And actually, some uses of swearing go beyond just communication. Oh, right. Like that one. <laughs> like that one. <laughs> all right. So that's all that I've got for what have we, what have you been up to? Uh, so it was it's actually been fairly nice out this last week. So I have my two motorcycles down in the basement. We have the Ducati Scrambler and a Harley Sportster. Yep. And so I was like, we need to get the bikes out. And in the only way to get them out from the basement is to ride them up my steep hill in the backyard, <laughs> which I was like, the Sportster isn't going to make it yet. Because that doesn't have any tread on the tires. It's yeah. basically like the Arctic Explorer from about previous week. It's also soggy. <laughs> it's very soggy out there, It is too. extremely soggy. But I was like, well, the Ducati has kind of those off-road tires on it. It's a scrambler. So I'm going to take that thing out. Holy God, I destroyed my lawn. <laughs> there are ruts. It's basically a mud pit in my backyard Well, you live now. in a swamp, so yes, it's basically it's, makes... Hey, or Chris, a marsh. It's I'm a sorry. marsh. I'm sorry, it's a marsh. Marsh is the classy swamp. It's the upscale yes, swamp. Yes, exactly. So that was fun. Did take the bike out after that, and it's way too cold still. Is you it? don't realize that, okay, it well, seems warm... Sixty mile per hour windshield is very cold. Well, there's a lot of people out on their bikes that are apparently tougher than you are. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, or stupider. The 911 front end is that's not, that's uh, looking, not a word, Jake. It's much stupider. <laughs> They're much stupider. The 911 front end is back together and looking much better. I just took my uh, gas tank out and like did some uh, welding repair on it and cleaned up rust and everything else. And sure. so that was good. Nothing as intensive as yours, but I also was in there looking at that. That's good. I got a I got a windshield washer set up finally. Yeah, I don't have a windshield washer sprayer in my car. No, was it an option? I feel like no one does. I think they all came with it. I think they did too. I just have. I the, just feel like everyone always takes them out for some reason. I why? I don't know. So what did you have to do to get the washer bottle to fit? I ordered a new washer bottle. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a. You show me a bracket. There's yeah, a bracket you, you need that a needs to be welded. Bracket that need to weld in there too. Have I, you done that? I haven't welded it on, but it did come with my. I should front take lash measurements panel. 
for you so that you can get that welded in place before you that would be great because i was like what is this stupid thing for i don't need this that's for your washer and now it's probably on the floor somewhere that i that you will never find it i'll never find it. you want to hear a funny story though talking about washer bottles so my dad told me the story about a buddy he used to know years and years and years ago he worked with them and in his truck he had his you know you have your washer sprayer but it, it, it didn't work it wasn't hooked up okay instead he had it run into the glove box with a little spigot and what he would do is fill it full of vodka. <laughs> this guy definitely needed his fix, I think. And so while he's driving, all you have to do is pull the, the windshield washer thing. It's like thing. a camelback for your car. Exactly. And, you know, if you get pulled over, there's no open container. Sorry, officer. There's no alcohol in here. If he's going to do that, why did he put it in the glove box? He could have just had it where he could just spray it directly into his mouth out of the just headliner. Just like a straw? Yeah, just, <laughs> just tilt your head up and just... But now I'm thinking, Chris, you know how warm that fluid has to get in the engine bay? I know. Just like hot Just vodka. hot vodka. Ugh, <laughs> awful. So got that going. Also modifying my rear bumper on the 911, which is your old fiberglass RS bumper. Right. It never really fit right for some reason. Because what do you mean for some reason? They don't fit right. That's it just never how they're right. made. The guy that makes them goes, <laughs> 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 come on. I, I know that all these old cars are kind of hand built, right? They're right. welded together. But the distance from front, the in the wheel arch uh-huh. to the rear uh, where the taillight is, is uh-huh. the same on every car. You would sure think so, because this bumper, it isn't even the same on both sides of it. I measured. Again, with these body parts, <laughs> I know that this is just, quote unquote, how it is. I've been told right. this is that's just how it is. Why? I know. Why does it have to be this way? I challenge all body men at once to go on strike and <laughs> rise up against this fitting <laughs> panels. Not going to happen. No. So I had to measure three times, cut once, twice in this instance, and then kind of fiberglass it all back together. It looks great. I'm really happy with it. Also installing. I'm doing Wait, a so lot you of had things. to cut the cut the up by the front by the wheel arch. You cut it off flush. Yep. And then you did you make glass or did you? So I fiberglassed back on basically the end caps for the bumper. If that makes sense. Okay. So you cut it off, cut it down more, and right. then put it back yep, on again. Exactly. So it still has that cool contour right by it. So did you use lip. actual fiberglass? Oh yeah, stuff resin to... and the glass fiber and everything else. I You've did been a right. lot more motivated than I have lately. Oh yeah, that's not it. I also have my passenger seat to install because uh-huh. I had my RS seat in last year, but never bothered doing the passenger seat. Yeah, so you were nice and snug and snug and, and poor Nikki's just yeah, flopping she's just all over flopping the place. All over. Yeah. <laughs> so I have this in, but I still want to have access to my back seats for, you know, if, for whatever reason, a small child needs to get in because that's yeah. all that'll fit back there. So, but these are fixed back seats. So what do you do? Well, even if you have basically a... Uh, opening or what would you call it? Some sort of tilting mechanism on the bottom seat bracket. It'll hit the ceiling. Right. So I've looked into this a lot. Okay. And Jeeps, Wranglers, TJ specifically, have a cool mechanism where I'm holding it in my hands and this doesn't help because I'll try to I'm imagining, let me guess, it goes like this. More or less. Yeah, it almost rotates and goes forward at the same time. It's like a double axis thing. Yeah. So I got one of these brackets and I'm going to modify it to work on my car. Well, I hope that works because I'd be interested in hearing about that as well my seats fold forward but um when i that's one of the reasons why i got rid of the rs seats that i had right you don't have any access you have no access to the back seat whatsoever yeah so that's what's been going on 
with me. All right, what have we got before we get into some of the news? Yeah, let's talk about our sponsor, Worth. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. They offer high-quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with industry-leading customer service. They also have their excellent world-class line of hand tools that I have used quite a lot. Yeah, since I actually, I've a they have these offset wrenches that I used a lot when I was working on the Mercedes that really, really helped me out. Yeah. You'll have to check them out. Head over to worthusa.com. Check out all their products. And we uh, also have our guy, Andy from Worth, who you can get in contact with through us. Yep. Okay, on to the news. So you may have noticed that gas prices are really, really cheap. Really cheap. Yeah, they are. I mean, there's some guys that are paying a dollar, like around a dollar a gallon in some wow. places. Um, here, I think it's dollar seventy, dollar ninety, somewhere in there. You know, it's still pretty. I saw a dollar ninety not a few days ago, but I'm sure it's lower than that now. Diesel is still expensive because obviously things are still needing to be trucked everywhere. But do you know why the gas prices are so expensive? I don't. I assume it's because people aren't driving. Partly, but Saudi Arabia is actually the reason why the prices are so low. So they basically. Um, they had pushed for a deal to deepen and prolong production curbs, so they they stopped pumping. Right, anytime okay. they stop pumping, you know, supply and demand. Right, right. so you prices have less of something up. prices go up. They're trying to keep the prices high, and they were trying to talk to Russia and say, "Hey, will you do this with us?" Sure. And Russia said, "Well, fuck you." So uh, <laughs> the the Saudis decided they're just they went they started pumping like crazy to bury the Russians, and oh, this has all really? happened before the coronavirus. So uh, Senator uh, Republican Senator Dan Sullivan said, "Quote: The Saudis have really." brought in a supply shock at exactly the wrong time. <laughs> Trump mentioned this on a recent meeting saying, I think with that, we will have to work on it over the next few days. Both know what they have to do. Um, Which I'm, means what? Yeah, it, it does. There was no other further details given. <laughs> on Thursday, however, the they Kremlin... They may know what they need to do, but... The, the Kremlin rejected Trump's, remark, Trump's remarks. Talks with Saudi Arabia have, quote, not begun, end quote, are not planned. Dmitry Peskov, spokesman for the Russian president, uh, Vladimir Putin... We should just call him the Russian ruler because he's not really a, voted much into office and i think he's just <laughs> kind of whatever um the financial times goes on to note that there's quote little sign of strategy shift just yet as saudi arabia continues to raise oil production for who i don't know right because nobody's Jeez. driving anywhere i was talking to uh i can't remember who i was talking to on the phone the other day but like you know what i've i've driven my car 52 miles in the last two weeks yeah i doubt i've done that it's the only place i've driven so I've driven here. Yep. As of last Thursday, I drove here. I drove to drop my wheels off. Yep. And then I drove here. <laughs> right. That's it. That's all I've driven. So I don't know. This is like I've a recipe. I've gone to like the hardware store twice. So here we go. Saudi Arabia is pumping, 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 and nobody's buying. So they're wildly out of uh, out of control with the supply, and demand is wildly low. So yeah. I don't think this is the lowest that we're going to see. I bet it'll keep prices. dropping. It's going to keep dropping because I know till at least through May, Nobody's driving. When's the last at time least. we've seen lower than a dollar? We should saw, look at that. Okay, so I remember. I thought about this. Oh, really? I, I remember paying 98 cents a gallon for diesel in high school. Okay. Which is, I was 16. That's seven, how many years? 23? <laughs> is that 23 years ago? Oh, no. Dude, no. You're so old. It's 23 years yeah. ago, dude. Holy so shit. So that was 1997? 1996, oh. 97, 98, kind of in those, 99. In those years, it was less than a dollar. Wow. So that was the last time I remember ever seeing that. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So uh, speaking of demand, car sales are down 
And I wanted to let you guys know how bad it really is. Okay. So we'll just run through this quick. Hyundai, one of the hottest brands over the last 24 months, is down 43% in the last <laughs> month. EU-wide production losses from factory shutdowns amount to 1.23 million vehicles so far, with wow. some 1.11 million workers affected, not including the supply chain. Hmm. The wider sector provided jobs for 13.8 million people across the European Union. And this is uh, in the last, I think, two weeks, three weeks, Yeah, uh, I think 20 or 30 million people have applied for unemployment here. Yeah, it's which just is, which skyrocketing. Is uh, Porsche retail deliveries by the 192 independently owned and operated U.S. dealers totaled 11,994 from January through, Mar- through March, down 20%. See, that's surprising to me. They're down less as a luxury brand than Hyundai. Okay, but you have to... Uh, blah, 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 blah. So Hyundai posted a decline of 43% in the last month. This is 20% over three months. Okay. So this isn't showing, I, I mean, these you. numbers aren't like apples to apples. Yep, that, that makes sense. That, doesn't, that information would be, doesn't really exist. Tesla delivered roughly 77,000 cars worldwide last quarter, the first to include handovers from the new Model Y crossover. Well, that would be a jump from a disappointing result a year ago. It would also mark more than 30% down from record deliveries that they were reporting over the last three months. Sure. At Fiat Chrysler of America, uh, Ram was the only one with a first quarter gain at 3%, mm. uh, which means they were selling really, really well, I would right. think, except for now. Volume dropped 14% at Jeep, 20% at Dodge, 5% at Chrysler, 50% at Fiat, Oof. and 14% at Alfa Romeo, who wasn't selling cars in the first place. So, so they weren't uh, so able to drop. <laughs> <laughs> the automaker on Wednesday, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, the Rant, Dodge and Fiat, whatever, they're doing... Uh, 0% financing for 84 months right now. <laughs> and they will do no wow. payments for 90 days. So you buy the truck, you don't pay anything for 90 days, and then and no, no interest, interest for 84 months. Forever. Forever. That's forever. You better you better have that car paid off in, what is that, seven, six and a half years? I You'd better have that wild. paid off. Mazda is down uh, 41%. GM is 7% down a Buick, 35% a Cadillac, 15 Chevy, 3.8 GMC. Nissan is down 30%. Infinity is down 30%. You know, it's it's uh, it's not looking great no, for anybody. Um, China's relaxing quotas and regulations on electric vehicles. And I find this interesting because I want you to tell, I'm going to have you read between the lines. I'm going to read you a couple things. Okay. And then you tell me what this really means or what you think I think this really means. <laughs> okay. Which is the correct thing. Obviously. Policymakers acknowledge that automakers are strained to promote electric models when overall demand is slowing. They want the auto industry to recover steadily this year. The policy shift comes as Zin Gwebin, vice industry. Vice Industry Minister, everybody over there is a minister, aren't they? This yeah, is the minister of this, minister of that. Um, they said on Monday that China would make, quote, make adjustments on new energy vehicles and related policies to future promote the coordinated and healthy development of the automotive industry. So what do you get out of this when you hear it? I don't know. Here's, so, what, here's what I get. You want, me just, you want to guess or you want me to just No, tell you? go ahead. What, what's your take? They are reducing regulations and requirements that the automotive industry can survive. Exactly. They're trying to make it so the automotive, they can breathe, basically, these manufacturers. Which should tell you that these are astringent regulations and quotas in the first place. Oh, yeah. So I'm just saying, when you read between the lines here, they're basically saying, yeah, we know that this type of stuff hurts the automotive industry, yeah. but we're going to we're gonna just not do that right now because they're really hurting. But hey, when they're doing good again, we're going to start <laughs> choking them at the neck again and try to get them to do what we want them to do, which is typical of any type of yeah, I guess. 
Okay, so we're going to lead into kind of our main story right now with this, right. with our, our main segment with this news story. So you know that Ford and General Electric are partnering to build ventilators in a new new venture that they announced earlier this week. Right, because they are in desperate need. Right. Ford and GE Healthcare have licensed a ventilator design from Aeron Corp and plan to produce as many as 50,000 of them at a Michigan factory by July as part of a broader effort to, you know, Basically, fill help. the gaps. Yeah, yes. fill the gaps. Ford will initially send a team of engineers to help boost production at their facility where it produces just three ventilators a day. Wow. Ford will also begin to ready its own Rossonville Components Plant in Ypsilanti, Michigan, for large-scale production of the Model AE ventilator that is suspected to begin April 20th. Ford said it will pay 500 United Auto Workers who have volunteered for, to work at the facility. Ford suspended production of its vehicles during this pandemic. Ford said Monday, this is what's kind of crazy. It expects to produce 1,500 ventilators by the end of April, 12,000 by the end of May, and 50,000 by July. So these guys that are making three ventilators a day yeah. are going to be making thousands of ventilators. This is It's, it's, it's crazy. crazy. The automaker also said it will eventually have the capacity to build 30,000 a month. That's nuts. So they go from what three a day? So they go from sixty a month to thirty thousand a month. Yes. Someone's getting a bonus check at this <laughs> ventilator company. <laughs> Seriously, um, I looked it up. I was like, "Is this a privately held company? Can I get right, it?" Exactly. Uh, I couldn't find any stock tickers or anything for that company. On March 18, twenty twenty, in response to the COVID nineteen outbreak, President Trump issued an executive order that defined ventilators and protective equipment as essential to national defense, a standard required by the DPA. I would like to begin. Uh, by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. We'll be invoking the Defense Production Act just in case we need it. Uh, in other words, I think you all know what it is, and it can do a lot of good things if we need it, and we will, uh, we will have it uh, all uh, completed, signing it in just a little while, right after I'm finished with this conference. I'll be signing it. It's prepared to go. So we will be invoking the Defense Production Act. So, Chris, you know how we have show notes? Yeah. Can we get Trump notes? Yeah, that was like a 30-second <laughs> clip of something that could have been said in one sentence. Um, so he's also using it to direct General Motors to produce ventilators needed for the coronavirus outbreak. He said of GM, quote, they were going to give us 40,000 much-needed ventilators, quote, very quickly. But now they're saying it will only be 6,000 in late April. Apparently, that wasn't enough. Uh, I wasn't happy where General Motors built plants in other locations over the years, not so much during my term, but they built a lot of plants in other countries. I won't name the countries, but you can imagine. And uh, so I didn't go into it with a very favorable view. I was extremely unhappy with Lordstown, Ohio, where they left Lordstown, Ohio in the middle of an auto boom because we had 17 car companies coming in and then they were leaving one plant in Ohio. I love Ohio, and what happens, that became the story. Not that all these plants are moving in, but that you had uh, one plant they were leaving. And uh, frankly, I think that would be a good place to build the ventilators, but we'll see. We'll see how that all works out. But uh, so I wasn't too thrilled, and then we thought we had a deal for 40,000 ventilators, and all of a sudden it became six, and then price became a big object. But Peter Navarro is going to handle that, and Peter will do a very good job. We'll see. Maybe they'll change their tune, but uh, we didn't want to play games with them. Yeah. So basically, uh, you're going to make these ventilators for us? Great. Oh, wait, you're not? 
Oh, well, guess what? I'm going to throw you under the bus. You are going to make them. <laughs> last, week, last week, uh, GM said it would start producing Ventec Life Systems ventilators at its engine plant in Kokomo, Indiana, using about 1,000 workers. GM said production will begin in the next 7 to 14 days with the first shipments of FDA-cleared ventilators scheduled to begin April. Ventec is also trying to ramp up production at its manufacturing city in Bothell, Washington. So what I want to point out here a little bit mm-hmm. is who is doing the work here? Private industry. Who is fucking everything up? <laughs> the federal government. I just want to point that out and just leave it over here on the side okay. that every time there's a crisis, whether it's Katrina or this virus, it's always up to private industry and local government to get everything figured out for the people that matter. And even the uh, uh, Governor Newsom in California said, hey, you know, we're going to have to figure this out for ourselves. We can't rely on the federal government. And that's just how it is. We got to take care of each other at the local level. And I know that our state uh, governor was like, oh, 3M, you're from here. How about some ventilators? How about some coats? How about some N95 masks? Right. I think it worked out well. I did have one question. Um, why auto manufacturers for this? Yeah, I don't know. Is it just like, did Trump decide? I think it's because they don't have the production yeah, capability but, uh, to do anything right now anyways. Their plants are standing yeah, idle. Yeah, aren't they kind of assemblers at this point? Right. Like they, that's, what, that's what this work will be. Yeah, no. I'm talking in terms of they take a lot of parts from their suppliers and then put them right. together. I know they make some some stuff in house, but a lot of stuff is made in other places. And I don't know, I don't know that auto manufacturers are the best use of the DPA to... Who would you have manufactured? I don't know. I don't know that any companies, maybe they are, but it's just in my thought, in my mind was that there's got to be somebody better than the auto manufacturers to be able to do this. And the ventilators are ridiculously complex. It's not just like uh, the simple thing that you can just make in five minutes. (laughs) I mean, there's been some people 3D printing parts for them, but they are really, really complex. So I wanted to get some questions answered um, on the ventilators. All right, so we have Andrea, who's a nurse anesthetist, and she knows a lot about ventilators. I do. I have a question of um, why are they needed with this situation? Why is everybody saying we need ventilators? We need ventilators. What is it? What are they being used for in this case? Yeah, so um, COVID-19 causes kind of, it wreaks havoc in the lungs, if you will. If you can imagine kind of an inflammatory process that goes all throughout the lungs. Um, It's something that we kind of, in the worst forms of it, it's called um, ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. And the hard thing about it um, with ARDS is that it's very hard to manage without a ventilator. It's very hard to do without, you know, being able to set pressures and things like that on a ventilator um, to uh, manage the patient and their breathing mechanics. So how complex are these things? Because it seems like everybody has a shortage of one. This is basically a mechanical version of the guy squeezing the thing when you're in the ambulance, right? You see right. it on TV yep. or whatever. They put the thing on your right. mouth and they're squeezing it, breathing for you. So this right. is the mechanical version of that. How complex is it? So let me start at the mouth. So um, at the mouth, we have, you know, where you have a breathing tube and you have an eating tube. Um, and we want to put a airway device, an endotracheal tube inside of um, the breathing tube. And from there, we can connect that tube to a ventilator so that we can control the respiratory mechanics. Okay. You've just bypassed the mouth so that you have full control. Um, once the 
um, once the ventilator runs, the ventilator can assess pressure. So it has kind of an assessment and mechanic tool inside of it to say, okay, this is the negative or the negative or positive pressure I'm getting as feedback from the patient. And you can do that through an endotracheal tube. Okay. So when um, practitioners like myself um, look at a ventilator, we can look at the numbers, the feedback that endotracheal tube is, you know, going obviously straight to the lungs and we can assess, okay, what could be going on in the lungs? How can I treat that? And what can I do? And that's super useful in patients that are going through a very, you know, bad illness um, respiratory wise, because we can kind of assess and dial things in. It sounds like it's almost like a CPAP machine. So that's a really, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So, and one of the biggest things with ventilators and actually specifically with patients with ARDS or, you know, that's, that's kind of the syndrome that's associated with very severe COVID is um, that you can, there's pressure inside the lungs, but you can overcome that pressure with the ventilator and kind of pop those balloons open so that you can get gas exchange. So, which, and when I say gas exchange, I'm saying oxygen exchange because these patients become extremely hypoxic, AKA their, um, their oxygen is very low in their blood. They turn blue. So, so the machine itself is fairly complicated too. Like, there's got to be something with uh, with some valves or something moving in there. I'm just what I'm trying to get to is why are these things so complicated that we need an auto manufacturer to take over production of these things to get enough of them to the people that need them? Sure. So here's the deal: people aren't normally like on a normal in a normal world where COVID isn't existing and we're not, you know, um, experiencing a pandemic as a world. Um, people don't normally get this. We don't see a surge of people this sick that need ventilators. You know, we like one of the main things in medicine and in nursing is, you know, the least invasive approach that will work. So, and, you know, putting a breathing tube down somebody's trachea is not non-invasive. It's very invasive. And we try not to do that. And, you know, with very sophisticated medicine, we can kind of get people through, um, you know, respiratory illnesses and stuff like that without a ventilator. So we are kind of being caught with our pants down as far as, you know, not having enough ventilators because we couldn't anticipate a pandemic, of course. And it's not every day that we have a surge of patients with ARDS, right? ARDS, uh, most times you need, a, in severe forms of ARDS, you definitely need a ventilator to overcome pressures and kind of take over the respiratory cycle for the patient to save their life. I can only imagine I it's it basically we we talk about this on the podcast today is you're basically volunteering to go to a place that could kill you. Oh, and, absolutely. Yes. And there's a huge amount of respect I have for that and oh. living up to the code that you guys, you know, took when yeah. your oath of making people well. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very noble. It's a very noble and heroic thing. Yeah, thank you. And you know the appreciation that we're seeing, the outreach that people are doing to just appreciate healthcare workers is just something that gives me goosebumps. Well, thanks for doing that. And and thanks for helping explain it to everybody yes, that's going to listen. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You take care of yourself. Thank you. You too. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So before we get into our main story, what have you got for us? 
Yeah, let's take a moment to talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing, supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, all that great stuff. They box it up, send it right there to your doorstep. You don't need to go out to get this stuff, Chris. That's what's great about this. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. The Petrolbox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrolbox Box Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code Overcrest at checkout to get six bucks off your first month. All right, let's. Are you ready to go? We ready to get this? Get let's this going. Finally, get on the road here. All right. As we alluded to with this pandemic, no manufacturers in the country and really across the world are making cars. Yeah, the entire factories are just sitting idle. They're just shut down. And the only other time that this happened was during World War II. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. That was Franklin Delano Roosevelt in one of his now famous fireside chats. And it was broadcast on December 29, 1940, which keep in mind is a full year before the U.S. entered into the war. Now, Europe was embroiled in fighting, but you need to realize that our country was still reeling from the Great Depression, and many were reluctant to enter the war. Well, FDR's arsenal of democracy speech that we just heard didn't argue for entrance into the fighting. It did propose that we support our allies with, quote, the implements of war. Manufacturers of watches, of farm implements, of linotypes and cash registers, and automobiles and sewing machines and lawn mowers and locomotives are now making fuses and bomb packing crates and telescope mounts and shells and pistols and tanks. But all of our present efforts are not enough. We must have more ships, more guns, more planes, more of everything. And this can be accomplished only if we discard the notion of business as usual. You know, I kind of got goosebumps listening to these old clips. And, you know, I know that everybody in, in society today is making these comparisons to, you know, where he's, Trump says he's a wartime president and uh, there's people comparing it to the Great Depression and stuff right. like that. There's a lot of differences here. But there I, are. There, I mean, it's it's an, it's an interesting segue, but I just want to get across the point that we understand that this is... This is not the same. This is not the same. and you know, But it's interesting to look back with this lens. It is, absolutely. And when we looked at, at the Great Depression, the amount of unemployment that's happened here in the last several weeks took years to happen. In the Great Depression, it took a long, long time. It didn't just happen overnight. So right. even what's happening now is different than the Great Depression because people oh, for are sure. people are always going to try and um, clamor to grab onto something to have some sort of reference point for yeah, what's going some on. Some perspective like we've what we've seen before right. or how so, this compares. So I just want to say, just as a disclaimer, hey, we understand this is not World War II, but it is a really, really interesting segue to a great story. Right. So with that, the greatest industrial undertaking this country has ever seen was quickly underway. Roosevelt consciously pursued an industry conversion program to shift production to a wartime footing. Now, this is pre-DPA, right? This is the DPA or the Defense Production Act was in the Korean War. 
Correct. So that started the Korean War. They've used it a little bit um, to... Yeah, so uh, like, what Trump mentioned before, that was enacted later, at much later than World War II. Right, and it, there was other things that have been used, that's been used for, like, uh, like s- some silica carbide that we have in our society tonight. Like, some some research some that's happened, hey, we need to do this, you need to do this. Truman used it a little bit to um, make sure that steel was being used for certain things, uh, but that's not this. This is a no, little bit so pre- to answer your question, President Roosevelt established the War Production Board on January 16th, 1942. It superseded the Office of Production Management. The WPB regulated the industri- industrial production and allocation of war materials and fuel. That included coordinating heavy manufacturing, rationing of tires. Do we know if this is something material? that Congress had to approve of, or was this something that he just did that using I executive order? Here. I wonder if it was just executive it order. It may have been. That I don't have here. Here's what I do have that I find very interesting. So basically, you're president, you're in charge, you know we yeah. need to start. Yes. Damn it. No, no, no. <laughs> yes, give me the power. <laughs> okay. For illustrative purposes, you're in charge. You know we need to start making materials. Yes, let's do it. You need to it. convert industry over. So you need to look and say, this industry, this manufacturing sector can do what? What can they build for us? Right. Here are some examples. Roosevelt basically said, all right, lingerie factories, they need to begin making camouflage netting because they can make lace and yeah. netting. Yeah. Camouflage. Perfect. Baby carriages. The manufacturing of baby carriages became field hospital food carts. Okay. Lipstick cases. There were companies making lipstick cases. They make now bomb cases. <laughs> Wait, why do you need a lipstick case? How many different colors do you need to take with I you? I don't at a time? know. <laughs> Well, not for war, obviously. No. So when you're making the lipstick case, what does that manufacturing yes, process look like? Yes, obviously we're not in a foxhole putting lipstick <laughs> Come on, on. Guys, I understand what that. shade of rouge should I go with? <laughs> Beer cans went to producing hand grenades. Adding machines meant they would go to automatic pistols because they're making small, precise components. And vacuum cleaners went on to make gas mask parts. Creepy. Yes. Roosevelt charged William Knutson to head up all military production. Now, at the time, Knutson was the president of General Motors, which was the largest company in history at the time. GM was? Yes. Okay. Knutson gave up one of the most well-compensated jobs in the world to take on the position at a salary of $1. Wow. I mean, I think of it like if you think about the this through the lens of what I said earlier, at this time, GM is making everything. Yes. Okay. So they're making the wheels, the generator in the car, the water pump, the radiator. I mean, they're generally making a lot of the stuff. In Is that house, true? Or at the least, it's probably all made in Detroit. Yes. Right. I could a see lot that. of this stuff is 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 made in house. It's not as much of a part supplier thing. As it is, I mean, maybe the radiator was. Maybe Gates was making the radiator back then. I don't know. Yeah, it would have been AC Delco, right? Yeah, who knows? But I'm just saying, a lot of this stuff was, um, if not made by GM, it was close to home. Yeah, not like because you're wire- trying to draw the contrast of today. It's basically just assembly plants, right? It's it's not like it is now, where the the wiring harness shows up from Denso and they put it in. You know, it's 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 a little bit more close to home. Where I think this production of things is more possible because they have more re- they have more uh, resources in which to make different things sure. at the factory. That That's sense. what I mean. So Knutson gave up the, one of the top salaries in the world to come on and work for the government for a dollar a year. 
Well, I think there's uh, there's a couple of guys that have reduced their salaries by quite a bit in society yeah. today. Even Yeah, I mean, there are parallels, like we said. Soon after, at the New York Auto Show, Knutson gave a keynote speech that stirred the entire automotive industry. Quote, the first half of 1941 is crucial, Knutson exclaimed, standing in front of the most powerful executives in Detroit. Gentlemen, we must outbuild Hitler. Truly. Yeah. And that's that whole mentality is what went into the Cold War, too. We need to outbuild right. Russia. We need to out economy them. So Knutson was so instrumental in the war effort that he was actually made a general in the army, the first and only civilian to ever receive that distinction. He's the only civilian to ever become a general. This guy's legit. Yeah. Arthur Herman is one of the foremost historians on the subject, and he states that at the war's end, Knutson had gone from the president of GM to, quote, the man who had built the U.S. armed services into the greatest military machine in history. Do you think it would be possible to do something like this today or necessary to do something like this today in terms of war? I don't know. I hope not. I, of course, I hope not, too. I'm just wondering if if the society today, which, in my opinion, is far more narcissistic than it was in the 40s and 50s, right. would be willing to make... When was the All last sacrifice? When was the last time anybody really had to sacrifice? I don't know. Maybe the Vietnam War during the draft? Yeah. Was that really the last time? I mean, obviously people have died in the Gulf War, the Iraq War, you know, in Afghanistan. I mean, it's all relative. But a lot of that stuff is is voluntary. Uh you sign right. up for the military, you you volunteer for it. Yeah, it's not compulsory. You know, and they're not com- they're not compelling industry to do anything none of that stuff has happened i don't feel like society has really had to sacrifice much at all not not in my lifetime i I mean it it really is all relative so you hate to say like oh you didn't suffer right because i mean the great recession that we had in 2008 that was there was suffering involved but certainly not like wartime right well yeah of course suffering is all relative you only know what you know but i'm just saying from my perspective what was going on in the 40s where yeah people are getting it's literally all hands on rationing deck. food i mean yep. it's it's that kind of sacrifice that's why they call it the greatest generation right yeah is because the amount of sacrifice that that entire generation of americans went through and i didn't include it anywhere here but i remember there was a quote i read that said the the citizens at home were willing to make these sacrifices because they knew if they didn't they would lose and lose their freedom yeah, well, right? here, here's there the, needs to be that big of a threat. Now, in here's my mind. kind of a here's kind of a thought. Okay, is just kind of a little bit off topic, a little. But I, the way I look at it, what's going on today is our economy is completely stopped. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, there's a stop sign on the economy. Nobody's no no crossing go no collecting two hundred dollars. Right? More or less. And. What you see happening in the bills that are being passed in in the government to help everybody, which I understand is necessary. I get it. I'm not anti, you know, anything that's going on right now. Are we foundationally changing the the makeup of the roots of the country by doing this? Right. Is are things changing? Are we losing any freedoms or individuality? What sacrifices were made during World War II with, you know, millions of people dying to to protect people's way of life? And now we're we're saying the opposite is we're saving people. We're not willing to make any sacrifices. 
and is our life, way of life changing? I'm not saying it is either way. I'm just yeah. saying that's it's worth pontificating. Like, what are we losing right now as a society? Where are we going to be? What is the new norm going to be in a yeah, year, two years, five will years? Change. The country will change. Where will we, where we will be and what will change? I don't know. Right. But you well, know, before Chris pontificates all over himself, let's <laughs> keep going here. William Big Bill Knudsen, as he became known, was only the first industry man to drive the war effort. Together with shipbuilding magnate Henry Kaiser, he helped inspire business leaders across the country to mobilize this arsenal of democracy. Dozens of top business executives soon became dollar-a-year men, as they were known. That's a, good again, that's a good club to be in. Yeah, they gave up all of their salary to basically work for the government for a dollar a year. Now, it's just a different type of sacrifice. It is. Yeah. One such man was Edsel Ford, the CEO of Ford Motor Company and the son of Henry Ford himself. He and Charlie Sorensen, the company's foremost production guru, began mobilizing one of the most ambitious industrial projects of the time. Instead of producing cars, they set out to manufacture the most destructive bomber, the American arsenal, the B-24 Liberator. And they did it at a rate of one complete plane every single hour. Oh my God, that's unbelievable. Ford had never built four-engine bombers before. Well, the master of the assembly line, right? Yeah. Ford? Yeah, he's the guy you go to, right? He had never built these bombers before, obviously, and aviation experts insisted it simply couldn't be done. There's no way you can build them that quickly. Instead, Ford applied, as you said, those automaking mass production principles to the building of these 300-mile-per-hour, 56,000-pound bombers. They right now, there'd be some pencil-pushing nerd that would, <laughs> that would say, nope, it can't be done. You guys can't do this. Let's have a committee first. Let's have a committee. Let's get in the boardroom. Let's talk about this. Let's have a meeting. So Ford constructed a brand new facility, the Willow Run Bomber plant, and it soon became the largest factory under one roof in the world. The Washington Post called Willow Run, quote, the greatest single manufacturing plant the world had ever seen, while the Wall Street Journal called it, quote, the production miracle of war, which is an interesting way of thinking about it. The company turned out a total of 8,685 B-24s. Because of Ford, the B-24 is still the most mass-produced American military aircraft of all time. How many did they make? Do we know? 8,685. Wow. That's a lot of them. That's In a lot of planes. how many years? Not that many years. Next, Big Bill Knutson picked up the phone and called K.T. Keller, who was the chief executive officer of Chrysler. Supposedly, the conversation went something like this. Hey, uh, Mr. Uh, Keller, this is Big Bill over here at General Motors. Oh, hey, Bill. It, uh, it's kind of weird that you call yourself Big Bill, but uh, what's up? So question for you. Yeah, shoot. Can Chrysler, uh, could you guys build tanks? Uh, I don't know. I've never seen one of these guys before. But that didn't stop them, Chris. But we do have a turbine engine. <laughs> You're true. Well, no, not quite. Not, no, no, no. Yeah, we're Jumping the gun. Jumping the gun. No, so Chrysler, it, the quote I read, I made that up, of course, was, quote, I don't know. I've never even seen one of these tanks before, but let's do it. Yeah, it's, it's yes, I can do it. We'll figure it out. Soon after, Chrysler broke ground on what would become known as the Detroit Arsenal Tank Plant. The goal was to build thousands of tanks using automaking mass production techniques. What tank is it? The, what? That had never been done. This is the precursor to the Sherman. Okay. 
Yep. So here's the part that I love. Just because you're still in the middle of constructing this massive manufacturing plant, that shouldn't mean you can't start building tanks, right? The first Chrysler M3 tank rolled out the assembly line as the building was still being built around it. <laughs> Get to work, boys! The walls of the factory were still being constructed, so engineers brought in steam locomotives to help keep the place warm for the line workers. After all, this is in the middle of Michigan's bitter winter. As the factory swelled to 1.25 million square feet, the Chrysler switched production to the now famous M4 Sherman tanks. This is a massive facility. Now, one thing I didn't realize about these tanks was they were powered by a sort of Frankenstein engine. They needed to get these things up and going as soon as possible, and that meant they didn't want to take the time to engineer, develop, and test a ground-up new engine design that would be unproven, even right. when it gets out there. So, no, instead, the engineers at Chrysler took their existing six-cylinder engines that had been used in the Chrysler Royal and Windsor cars. They then lined up five of the engines, welded them together to create one massive 30-cylinder engine that produced a reliable 425 horsepower <laughs> to the tank treads. Where do they Whoa! This thing What? <laughs> There's nowhere you are in this tank that the engine isn't next to right, you. Right, exactly. It just <laughs> is the tank. Wow. So perhaps the most famous wartime production was that of a new light reconnaissance vehicle. The government put out requests for design submissions to the nation's auto manufacturers. Not only would companies need to design engineer a vehicle matching their specifications, they would also need to supply a working prototype in only 49 days. The Willys... Well, they just 3D printed everything, Yeah, well, right? of course. Yeah, easily. <laughs> easily done. The Willys car company design won the contract. However, because the U.S. War Department required such a large number of the vehicles in such a short time... Willys granted the U.S. government a non-exclusive license to allow another company to manufacture the vehicles using Willys' designs. That is some sacrifice right there, it's too. It's just another we example. This. It's great. Oh, we can't We can't build enough? Want. Here let's, you go. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. We did a whole episode on the, on the Jeep. Yes, we, we did. That's what back. we're talking about yeah. here. And I was just going to say, so uh, when these vehicles were first introduced, soldiers were skeptical. After all, they're new, untested. As such, they were referred to using an old World War I slang term for a new, uninitiated recruits, a Jeep. <laughs> and like you said, if this sounds familiar, it's because we did an entire in-depth episode on the history of Jeep. Yeah, it's good. Go listen to it. But Jeep, after this episode. Yeah. Jeeps went on to be used by every branch of the U.S. military. Combined, Willys and Ford produced 640,000 Jeeps for the war effort. Now, speaking of previous history episodes, one of the crazier of Detroit's World War II creations was an amphibious vehicle. Do you remember our friend Hans Triple, Chris? The guy from Germany. Who yes. <laughs> well, luckily, this story was far more successful than his. The story goes back to 1942 when GM engineers got together with a Marine architect and some Army officers to solve a critical problem. They knew that the Army was planning massive, highly dangerous amphibious invasions, and there would be no port facilitating the landings for all these men. Soon, a sketch was on paper, which I love. No one sketches anything anymore. Can you sure, they do. Yes, <sighs> they do. Okay. Well, I just love the idea that this is coming to life on a sketch. A sketch is on paper. Everything still starts as a sketch, I think. You think so? I think so. I would like to. But think maybe so. it's on an iPad. But yeah. I'm still saying everything starts out as a sketch. Well, we have a sketch. 
And this was a vehicle that could launch from a ship, part the waves on propeller power, and hit the ground and drive at speeds of 50 miles per hour with three axles, six wheels, all-wheel drive. Does it go quack? <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> so the vehicle's technical moniker was DUKW. Due to GM's internal coding system, where a D signified the model year 1942, U was used to signify amphibious, K was used for front-wheel vehicles, and W for two-axle rear drive. However, when you tell thousands of GIs that this thing is a car that can swim and its name is DUKW, they simply called it the duck. I've ridden in one of these. Have you really? They have them in the Wisconsin Dells. And you, oh, yes. you get in it and you drive around and then you That's go into awesome. the water and drive out of the water. So it's, GM they work great. built over 21,000 of them. They were 31 feet long, could carry a payload of well over 5,000 pounds. And pairs of them were actually strapped together to carry tanks to shore. Which I can just imagine these things. They lash them together and drive a tank onto them. I'm wondering how you get them off. I think you just, you're in a tank. You, you just, just do drive whatever, off. You just do yeah. whatever you want. <laughs> Between D-Day and June 2nd, 1944, and May 8th, 1945, ducks moved over 5 million tons of cargo onto the continent of Europe. So, put simply, America's response to World War II was the most extraordinary mobilization of an economy in the entire world. All down the production line, plant for plant, the Axis and the United Nations stand locked in battle. It will be the sweat of workers that tips the beam, the sweat of American workers who will give you men tanks and planes and guns to fight for our free and democratic world. A gun every 26 minutes. A tank every 12 minutes. A plane every nine minutes. Competing against men who often work at the point of a gun, who must produce or else, free American industry has pledged itself to deliver those tanks and planes and guns on time, ahead of time. <laughs> this war is industry's war. It is labor's war. They realize that defeat means the unconditional and permanent surrender of all they are or hope to be. No sacrifice now will be too great for them, because sacrifice now will ensure final victory. Ours and theirs. When we win, they win. I mean, that's what it really comes down to, right? You had Americans saying, we're going to do this because we believe in our way of life, versus you're going to do this or we're going to shoot you in the back of the head. Right. And those are two very powerful motivators. But very different. But very different. And you're certainly going to, if you're working because you believe in something, mm -hmm. there's a passion in your heart that really pushes you forward. Fear is a completely different thing. And I don't think it's as, it'll, it will motivate you to get something done. But it'll also motivate you to put the notch on the dipstick a little too low. Yeah, like, like the, the French did. For the Citroëns. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I would like to think that that American spirit will come through almost anything. Yeah. And winning the war wasn't the only thing that this mobilization at the time did for the country. During the war, 17 million new civilian jobs were created. Industry productivity increased by 96%, and corporate profits after taxes doubled. The war also created entirely new technologies, industries, and skills. 
The war brought full employment and a fairer distribution of income as well. Eleanor Roosevelt, in particular, argued that a fully productive workforce requires everyone's talent, not just white men, regardless of race or gender. This is where the famous poster of Rosie the Riveter comes in. You know, it was basically all these women needed to come and fill these jobs because the men, they were going off to war. They just weren't there. It really was equality born out of the need, right? And I think that's really interesting. For the first time, women entered the workforce, manning assembly lines. And if women are to work in the factories, their children require daycare. Eleanor Roosevelt proved that absentee rates were high in the factories because women were worried and going home to care for their children. As such, when Henry Kaiser built his big shipyard in California, the government paid for a 24-hour child care center. It was state-of-the-art, nursery school, teachers, everything else there. Workers on every shift could bring their children. If they worked at night, they could bring their children to sleep there. If they worked the day shift, children received education, sometimes that they had never received before or had an opportunity. In addition, see if this sounds familiar, restaurants began to prepare hot meals so women could take them home after work and provide dinner for families still takeout yeah the productivity was that rates, not a thing before that i think it was but this is where it became like super popular right because otherwise your wife is at home she's, she's making cook. meatloaf yeah why would you have takeout productivity rates soared as a result of these measures for instance those kaiser shipyards that i mentioned were tasked with building liberty ships instead of the industry average of 230 days Kaiser shipyards initially reduced construction time to an average of 45 days and ultimately to less than three weeks. One yard crew in particular set a record on November 1942 when it built an entire Liberty ship in four days, 15 and a half hours. This used to take over six months to do, Chris. It's because it's not because there's two ways that you like I said, you can there's two ways you can make people do it with the gun or with their heart. And these guys are building it for their heart. You know, if you have the government saying, you need to do this, there's no reason for it. Well, you just need to do this. People are going to be dragging their feet all yep. the way there versus whistling on their way to the work because they see that American flag flying above the place where they're building the damn ship and they're trying to get it done for that reason. It's just two completely different things. Yeah. This shipbuilding industry was revolutionized by this guy to such a degree that he, he quickly became a folk hero and inspired this story that I want to recount to you. Okay. So one day, the story goes, a lazy visited the Kaiser office in the shipbuilding port. And he asked her if he'd like to go christen a ship with him. When she excitedly said yes, Kaiser went to a locker, took out a bottle of champagne, and mentioned for her to follow him. They led her through the noisy and confusing of the ship card and eventually arrived at a dock. It contained nothing but open water. Kaiser handed her the bottle of champagne. The puzzled lady looked at the empty water and exclaimed, but there's nothing there. Never mind, said Kaiser as he looked at his wristwatch. Start swinging. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's just it's going to be done like it'll be done that. any second. Yeah, yeah. The phrase became the rally cry of his shipyards. Start swinging. Oh, I love it. That's great. Yep. The overall government spending on military production was broken down to 32% aircraft, 15% for his ships, 26% for ordnance, which includes guns, ammunition, and other vehicles. 5% for electronics. Keep in mind, this is kind of the dawn of like radar and radio communication. The remaining 23% went to fuel, clothing, construction materials, and fuel. When it came down to the automotive sector, General Motors was tasked with making trucks, tanks, and aircraft parts. Ford made trucks and aircraft. Chrysler 
produced tanks, as we mentioned, electronics, and also trucks. Packard made aircraft engines. Studebaker built trucks. Goodyear shifted all tire production to military tires. International Harvester made trucks. Just imagine all the people driving around on bald tires during It was time. rationed. Yeah, yeah. It's what you had to I've, do. I've seen my my grandpa has one of his old ration cards. He still has. Does he yeah, really? You can, it's like wow, just holding something like that in your hand really kind of puts That's it really into perspective. Cool. The the list goes on about what all these automotive companies did. You know, Caterpillar for construction equipment obviously made tanks. That's no surprise. Alice, Alice Chalmers is the tractor company supplied many of the components for tanks. Continental made aircraft components. Uh, there's. It goes on and on. Sunoco produced gasoline and oil exclusively for wartime usage. With an octane rating of like four. (laughs) (laughs) Those tanks could run on anything. Yeah, I suppose. So it really is no exaggeration to say that America won the war abroad due to the production at home. And that really was the sentiment, as you mentioned. Air Corps aces would come and visit factories with pilots telling the workers it wasn't the pilots who were heroic. It was the people making those planes. And it's interesting. Historians, politicians, philosophers, they've all wondered why this remarkable social and economic mobilization of humans coming together for a single goal, why that required a war. But perhaps today we're seeing that just maybe a little bit, that isn't the case. As mentioned before, with the shuttering automotive production today due to COVID-19, many manufacturers are instead turning producing much-needed equipment on a different kind of war. The front lines are not on a battlefield, but instead in hospitals and clinics. Yeah, and it's I, I keep thinking these people that are in these hospitals and clinics, and I, 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 they're basically sacrificing themselves. You yeah. know, there's, there's doctors that have died, nurses that have died. I mean, yeah. and they know it. And they go in anyway. And that's a very familiar sentiment. I mean, obviously, they're not drafted to go in there like some of the boys were back in the day. No. But, but they're still volunteering to go in there and 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 do what they swore an oath to do, which is make people well. Exactly. Well, before we – I have one more question for you. But before we get that, I want to remind everybody to go on to patreon.com slash overcrest and subscribe to the podcast. Support the show. Support the show, and uh, it's like five bucks a month. You get a ton of exclusive episodes. We'll have a new one of those next week. Uh, you get you can get a shirt. We have finally have all the shirts in. There's no delay on getting a shirt. And uh, yeah, you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a five star review. That would be a lot of help. So I have one more question for you on on all of this. If you could have one major manufacturer or minor manufacturer, I guess, survive, and it was the only one, mm. which one would you want? I would just Hellcats. I don't even want to manufacture. <laughs> I just want one car. Just one assembly line. Yeah, just that's all it. we can buy from now on are Hellcats. Just everybody's yeah. just driving around in those. Yeah. <laughs> well, gas is so cheap. It Why is? Not, you Chris? might as well. You might as well. And, you know, tires are going to be cheaper, too. Right, Petroleum exactly. prices going down. It's going to be great. Yeah. Burnouts and gas guzzling everywhere we go. Hey, there's our election slogan. Hellcats for 2020. Yeah, Hellcats. <laughs> Instead of sending everybody 1200 bucks, just send everybody a Hellcat. I like it. All right, guys. We will see you next week. Take care.